0: remember this strange moment when we we sort of could see each other and we were looking into each other's face plates and I could sort of see the whites of his eye and he could see mine and um you know there was almost a look of resignation in his eyes or a look of apologies you know you know There's nothing nothing I can do for you mate um yeah and it was almost like a moment of goodbye and um he was pulled backwards away from me um being pulled away and then eventually just disappearing into the darkness and you know I never I never saw him again unfortunately
1: G'day. I'm Richard Harris and thanks for joining me on Real Risk the adventure podcast. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Real Risk. Now, no excuse for missing an episode last week. My apologies. I had a guest unable to attend at the very last moment, so took the week off and hopefully we're back stronger and better than ever. We're continuing the the aquatic theme following the fabulous Maya Gabera, who I spoke to the week before last, uh, the big wave surfer and uh, her Pod, her podcast episode has been very popular indeed. And uh, I did hear that the waves in Nazaire had gone pretty crazy just uh, the week before last as well, and there'd been a biffo, bit of biffo out in the surf. So I hope Myra is in good shape and has survived the, any altercations that she uh, became involved with. The book giveaway for October uh, is going to a chap called Nick, Nick Atkin, who describes in his email how he's been working uh, with youth in outdoor education and mental health and uh, raising the level of awareness and understanding when people talk about risk. So uh, well-deserved, Nick, and I'll get a book, a signed copy of the book out to you as soon as I can. Sometimes you have a chat with someone that actually is really profound and um, the conversation I've just had with my next guest, Made me completely spellbound, to be honest. I, I found myself having a very dry mouth and unable to think of the next question as I, was, as I was hearing what was an extraordinary tale of survival. The guest's name is Chris Lemons, and Chris is and was a saturation diver working offshore in the North Sea when the ship that was supporting his dive drifted off its marks due to a computer failure on board and Chris's umbilical got snagged in the wreck and eventually broke, leaving him with about an eight-minute gas supply on his back. As the clock counted down and he realised there was no hope of rescue from 90 metres underwater, he basically accepted his fate and lay down quietly on the top of the structure and lost consciousness. The way he survived and the story of the teamwork that produced his survival is nothing short of extraordinary and the conversation we had went for well over an hour and a half so in fact not wanting to miss a single second of chris's incredible tale i've decided to divide the episode into two halves present one to you today and the second half next week i really hope you enjoy the story as much as i did i found it quite shocking to be honest to listen to as a diver and simply inexplicable as a medical person to try and explain Chris's survival. The the story is beautifully told in a Netflix documentary called Last Breath, which I can absolutely highly recommend that you watch. I hope you enjoy the episode. G'day, Chris. Thanks very much for joining me.
0: Hi. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's a real, a real pleasure.
1: Now, Chris, you became very well known to the world after surviving a diving accident Back in 2012, and obviously, we're going to discuss that. But I'm fascinated by the world of commercial diving and particularly saturation diving. I've done a little bit of uh, inshore commercial diving myself. I'm a very, very baby level one uh, occupational diver in, here in Australia. So let's talk a bit about your life as a commercial diver. Now, you're a Scotsman, but you grew up in Cambridge.
0: Oh well, I'm English. Yeah, be care, yeah, you have to be careful on that one round here. But yeah, I'm, I do live in Scotland. That's right. Yeah, I was uh yeah born in born in Edinburgh, so technically a Scotsman. But um, yeah, I grew up in Cambridge, which is about as far away from the world of commercial diving as you can get, really. Yeah, um, I just fell into it through through a sort of a, a friend of a friend of a friend, really, or a friend's father, in fact, who worked um, on a, on an offshore diving vessel. And I was at that point in my life where I didn't really know too much about what i wanted to to do with my life um and he was kind enough just to give me a summer job really uh, just working on the back deck of a of a a dsv a dive support vessel and that sort of gave me an insight into this world as you, you touched upon there that people don't really know very much about it's a strange um it's a strange world that's for sure and um to get to see it up close and to see these divers working for myself that sort of that was my inspiration really um that's what what drove me into into that
1: how old were you then Chris?
0: I was about twenty one I think when I started working on a on a dive support vessel yeah um yeah, I think they drove up in flashier cars than I did as well that might have been that might have been part of the problem as well but it looked uh, it looked sort of um it looked fascinating yeah you would see them um you know on camera screens and stuff they were stra- it's a strange sort of place because the the divers live in in the within the chamber, so you don't actually see them that much uh, they're almost uh, despite the fact they might be a few meters away from you they almost an alien species and it's they seem very I've learned otherwise since, but they seem very glamorous at the time. And yeah, I wanted to I wanted to be part of that really. Yeah.
1: So that vessel was doing saturation diving. That was your first experience was straight onto a set vessel.
0: Yeah, I was very lucky in that respect. Um that yeah, um I was straight onto a saturation diving vessel. But I spent a few years just working on the deck first. So um, you know, out in the out in all weathers in the North Sea. Um getting the tools and uh, and sending the tools down to the divers on cranes and and so on and so forth so yeah give me a sort of a, a good grounding in in the in the work before i actually got involved with diving proper
1: it sounds a bit like the the pilots on the aircraft carrier you know everyone else is thinking you know those guys i'd actually secretly like to be one of them but i'm just a worker bee Did, so they seem like uh, the the cool kids on the ship
0: yeah that's exactly it, exactly it, yeah i mean as, as i said you learn you learn otherwise once you actually, <laughs> actually get there but yeah, it's a strange. I mean, not everyone gets in that way. Um, you know, if, you've, if you would do come onto the film, then um, you know Dave and Duncan are sort of examples of divers who have who've got into saturation diving because it was their very much their passion. You know, dive was, uh, Dave was a sort of scuba diving instructor out in Thailand and and uh, loved the you know loves loves diving and found a way to make that his living. And Duncan was the same. You know, he, he's a bit older. He grew up on. On Jacques Cousteau and all that kind of thing uh and you know today to this day retains this sort of childish enthusiasm for for diving and being under the water and that's not really the case for me you know I didn't have that background I hadn't really done any scuba diving um you know very very little uh yeah so uh, so I'm supposed to be slightly different in that respect and that uh, for me it was it was very much a job and uh, a functional sort of thing rather than a, a passion uh, at the beginning anyway I mean I've, I've learned to I to love it very much and I love being under the water as anybody who experiences that regularly does, I suppose.
1: Yeah, we're talking about the film Last Breath, which, of course, um, details very, very... Spectacularly, um, with some real-life footage, of course, of the accident that that Chris was involved in. And if anyone hasn't seen it, I can absolutely recommend it. It, it reminds me, and we we were talking offline about this a, a moment ago, reminds me a lot of uh, free solo with Alex Honnold, who was in an earlier podcast. You know that sense of drama and almost being unable to look at the screen at, at times during the the documentary. It's a very powerful story, very well well told. Um, so what was your path into diving? Did you have to go through all the basic stuff and, um, you know, do they have do you use uh, similar to the ADAS scheme over here, level one, two and three and then set?
0: Uh, yeah, exactly right, yeah. Um, here it's sort of a HSE or health and safe executive tickets if you like. But, um, yeah, you sort of have to do a professional scuba course and then you have to take a, an air diving course and um, then an air diving top-up course we call it to go and work, to be able to work offshore in a, in sort of wet bells and things like that. Um, and then you have to spend so many years and gain so much experience at so much, so much much certain depths working in an offshore environment before you can then go on and take your, your saturation diving, um, course and exams. Um, so I probably did about, I think it was about sort of seven or eight years as a, as an air diver before I then went and qualified as a, as a saturation diver back in 2011. And that's a course I did down in, I did that down in Marseille actually, which was a great experience in itself. But, um. Yeah, it's so sort of a progression, really, um, and you have to sort of do the hard yards first as an air diver before they'll let you in the door, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, that experience plus that that experience you had on the boat must have put you in a pretty good place, actually, uh, having a, a good oversight of the whole industry by the time you, you reach that that what is really the pinnacle of, of commercial diving, isn't it? Sat diving.
0: Yeah, I mean it's the it's the best paid, I suppose, is the, is the, if, we're, if we're brutally honest about it. That's that's the way people want to get to. Um, yeah, and it's also. It's got a unique environment in that you are the door is sort of closed on you in an offshore environment and what i mean by that is that uh, they don't want to take a risk on people particularly and um, they need to be fairly certain that you're going to cope with the stresses and of living in that environment and working in that environment so um because it's a very expensive mistake if they put you in on day one and you and that's the point you realize this is not for me because then you've got you know you might have five days of decompression and two other divers you've got to bring out with you and that sort of thing and disruptions to schedules and that kind of stuff so yeah there's a there's a sort of a necessary learning curve and which is a fairly slow one um to make sure you are prepared and capable to do that once you get there because there's no, there's no turning back once you are really
1: so lots of opportunities along the way to be either vetted or to realize for yourself i suppose that this is not for you
0: yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's it's an industry that has a sort of a reputation for for nepotism and <laughs> for, for needing to, and there is truth in that, um, and that's not always a definitely not always a good thing. You know, there are definitely sons of people working out there who shouldn't be, but um, there is also a necessity for that because they want people, as I said, want people they they trust, and uh, so yeah, they like to have a good look at you first. So you know that most sat divers uh, will have worked on dive support vessels as air divers, and you know had, people had a chance to have a have a look at how they get on, and. And also how they get on with people because it's quite, uh, you know, when you're locked in those, as I'm sure we'll come on to, but, you know, locked in those chambers for long periods of time uh, in close confines with 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 other people, that's probably the harder bit of the job really is, uh, and you don't want somebody who's going to be, you know, aggressive or doesn't get on with people um, for the same reasons as, as, as if it's not capable of the job because i have got to bring you out. It's a it's a big problem.
1: Yeah, I've often thought, you know, for myself as an enthusiastic diver whether I would have what it takes to do that. And I think that is the one Area where I might fall short, to be honest, whether I could actually spend twenty eight days locked in uh, a steel small prison with three or four other blokes and and um, you know not get too snitchy would <laughs> would probably be <laughs> testing testing for most people. So I think it must take a very special tolerant personality type.
0: Uh, there is there's some of that, and I, I would suggest straight away you seem very amiable, and that's half the battle. I think is just being um, you know neat and tidy and, and and just just nice really. And it's, it's strange people imagine that you know commercial diving generally and you know saturation diving might be the the domain of macho aggressive types and it, and it really isn't because those sorts tend to get wheedled out so you know where certainly where i work on my boat i mean it's different all over obviously but you know on mine is we've definitely got a bit of a family environment there and most of the guys you go in with are are nice people you know nice and they get on and they're courteous and they you know they make they make efforts to to ensure that you are you have a pleasant experience in there if that makes sense uh, most of the time you know I'm not, not talking about everybody but yeah generally you find that it's not as hard as you think yeah but that is a difficult bit of the job is, is getting on with people definitely.
1: So in that context tell us a little bit about uh, an operation that you'd be involved with how long does it tell, tell the people who are listening just what is it like to be a sat diver what does it involve?
0: Yeah well I mean sat diving is essentially diving deep with saturated tissues. I mean, that's, that's what it is. So um, as everybody, anybody who's a diver or even not a diver, the people understand that when you go scuba diving, obviously you need to decompress as you come back up to the surface to get rid of the inert gases in your, in your body. And, and if you're diving to, you know, 30 meters for, for half an hour, that might take sort of 20 or 20 minutes or something like that, you know, to stop making stops on the way back up. But if you dive to um you know much deeper depths 100 meters 150 meters so i know you've done sort of on a technical basis but if you do that for long periods you know if you go and work for for six hours for example uh, on a seabed uh, at 150 meters um the the associated decompression is in the region of five days so obviously that is not feasible on a on a daily basis um it's not practical to have divers hanging on ropes in the water you know, for for their sake, obviously, uh, but also because uh, you know, this, it's a working operation that that, that works twenty four hours a day. So the way they circumnavigate that essentially is, um, aside from the the change in gases, so when they breathe, uh, we breathe uh, he- heliox, so a mix of helium and oxygen to to remove the inert nitrogen and the associated problems with nitrogen narcosis, which which, which obviously you get. Um, but um, yeah, the what you're basically doing is one very, very long dive. So the the dive support vessel we mentioned is a ship. um, And on that ship, we have a series of decompression chambers. Some of them are are living chambers, so with beds and bunks, and some are sort of working chambers. And on day one of any particular operation, we will, uh, in teams of three, there's usually four teams of three on our boat, so 12 divers in total will get into these chambers. We shut the door and we are pressurized down to basically an equivalent working depth so if we're going to be working at um at 100 meters we normally pressurize down to about 90 90 meters about 10 meters above the seabed so um, you're in a dry environment obviously and the, the gas is pumped in and you're pressurized down to, to that, that 90 meters and then each day uh, a diving bell will lock onto the top of the chamber you'll climb up into it um the three of you you'll close the door uh, you're separated from the chamber by removing the gas underneath. And then you're lifted and trolleyed and dropped down through a hole in the bottom of the ship down to 90 meters of depth. And then when you get to 90 meters, because you've got uh, an equivalence of pressure inside and out, um, when you open the door, you've still got a dry a dry environment. Um, and we've, at that point, we don our diving equipment. We put on the helmets and so on. And we uh, we drop the sort of, we get out and we drop the last 10 metres down to the seabed. So effectively, when you dive in about 10 metres, if that makes sense, A difference of 10 metres, you'll work for six hours. You will um, then come back to the diving bell after your six hours. You'll get back in. They'll close the door, add a little bit of pressure, and then bring you back up to the ship and lock you back onto the chamber, uh, after which you climb back down. You have a cup of tea some food uh read a book and go to bed and then repeat repeat the same thing the next day so essentially what you're doing is you're you're doing one long dive you're always under pressure you're never decompressing and that's a routine that will go on for uh, typically for 20 23 24 days depending on how deep you're diving Um we work as i said there's four teams of three so we all take turns doing six hours on the seabed so the boat works 24 hours a day after your 23, 24 days, you, you stop diving, um, and you, you decompress in the safety and the security of, of those chambers. So you do that and you'll do that very, very slowly. It's about a meter an hour. Um, so that can take sort of, you know, three or four days at at 90 meters, basically lying in your bunk, you know, watching films and reading books, um, in, in safety whilst your, whilst the gases sort of come very, very slowly out of your system. So it's a very, complex form of diving but it's in a, in a weird way it's a very safe way of diving because it's very very controlled but that's the crux of it yeah living in those chambers for 28 days at a time that's the sort of legal maximum here in the UK you can't do any more than 28 days then there's all the, all the sort of the day-to-day issues of living in there are resolved by having a team of, of life support technicians who will send you a menu in for you know three times a day which your tick boxes on and and uh, and then they'll send you your food in on silver trays. So I've had Christmas dinners and so on, on on silver trays in there quite quite a number of times. And um, everything you need, so they'll do your laundry for you. Um, even if you want to go to the toilet, you need to ask their permission to flush it and turn the hot water on for your shower, that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's a very strange environment. You're on camera the whole time. There's very, very little privacy, slightly claustrophobic, obviously. Um, the chambers are about two metres, two metres sort of circumference. You know, I'm about two meters high myself, so that's a constant problem, and uh, you know, constantly banging my head and everything. But um, yeah, it's a strange, a strange, strange world. And uh, you t- again, you touch on the film, and uh, that's quite a good thing about the film is it explains, I think, it explains that that sort of world quite well. I think.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very good on the technology and to see all the bulk gas supplies and uh, all the pipelines and and the chambers and. Uh, the way they all link up together is fascinating for someone with an interest like myself. I could have uh, just watched a, a documentary just about the technology, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's a shame we had to go and have a little situation in the middle of the film there. So, a couple more uh, bits and pieces just to set the scene before we we talk about the accident. Now, this may be proprietary and it's purely probably for my selfish personal interest, but what sort of what gas do you breathe down there at 90 meters?
0: Uh, We're we'll going to do the maths on 90 meters. But yeah, I mean, so when you're breathing Heliox, you're breathing probably night means probably about five percent something like that so five percent um oxygen obviously and 95 percent helium um you know for the uninitiated helium is a is a is an inert gas just the same as nitrogen but um it has the benefits of not having the narcotic effect that um, nitrogen has you know you breathe nitrogen beyond about about 33 meters something like that you start getting this you know the, the the drunk sensation if you like which um is quite pleasant but is very incapacitating the deeper you get, and it's just not feasible at all at 150 meters. Your decision making would disappear, and you'd uh, you'd be dead very quickly. So, yeah, they replaced that with helium, which has the benefit of being a very light, easy gas to breathe. Uh, has no narcotic effect at all, so it's it's great, really. Yeah, it's got quite bad thermal properties in terms of it. Um, it bleeds heat away from your body very very quickly, which is a factor we'll come onto later. But the uh, yeah, other than that, it's fantastic. It's also very expensive, which is a problem. Um, our gas is all almost all recycled. Um, uh, we all our gas is provided to us either in the chamber or, uh, or on the seabed through the umbilical. Is then um, we have a, a gas reclaim system, so it's uh, when you breathe it out, it's sucked back up to the ship or back out of the chamber and um, and regenerated, just the same as a, as if you were you know wearing a rebreather. Basically, it's scrubbed clean and uh, a bit of oxygen's added, and then it's returned because it's such an expensive. Um, and finite resource of course on earth so yeah uh, we can breathe as little as two percent sometimes um when, we, when we're deeper yeah um that's about a, a, a sort of weaker mix as i've ever breathed yeah
1: the um if there's some problem with your bulk gas supply while you're working on the seabed you have some cylinders or a rebreather on your back as a, a backup or bailout solution
0: yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, in, within the bell itself, uh, the diving bell has a whole series of bottles enough to last you um, 24 hours, basically a breathing gas in the event of an emergency if the bell were were lost, if you like, or yeah, stuck at the bottom for any reason. Um, but whilst you're actually in the water, yeah, we carry a... Um, uh, well, actually, originally, when at the time of the, the incident we're about to talk about, it was just bailout cylinders. So at that, on that day, I was carrying two 12-litre Twelve-liter bailout cylinders, usually with a higher partial pressure of oxygen than you'd be breathing in the water. I think partial pressure that there was one point six, I think, um, which was at the top end of what we normally normally we breathe there. And the bail, I think, is about zero point eight um, in the chamber. It's zero point four, um, so it sort of varies depending on what we're doing. Yeah, so that gives you on that day give you a very sort of gave me a sort of finite amount of gas, and obviously at a hundred and oh not hundred meters that day, it probably lasted. It would have lasted about eight. I'll give you about eight minutes of emergency gas, something like that. These days, though, yeah, a lot of companies, including us, have started using uh, rebreathers. Yeah, which um, you know, the, I think the equivalent. I think the equivalent depth now that we use one called a Cobra now, which would last to give it, on the same circumstances give you about forty minutes of breathing gas rather than. Um, uh rather than you know eight minutes so a big difference
1: all right well let's talk about the the accident uh, tell us about the conditions and and what the goal was the day that uh you, you started diving
0: yeah it was um so it's quite a while ago now so september it was september 2012 it was uh it was about 10 o'clock at night um so it was late in the evening and we were diving about 90 miles east of aberdeen so that's that pretty much puts you in the middle of the North Sea, you know, most of the oil fields in the North Sea run in a spine down the middle between the UK and Norway. Um so we were kind of kind of you know as far from land as you can be in, in that in the North Sea really. We were diving at ninety I think the bottom was ninety one meters that day. So the bell would have been, as I said, they hold the bell about ten meters above the seabed to ensure that it it can't ever catch any of the, the many structures that are under the water. So the bell was at, would have been about eighty one, I would guess, something like that. Uh, my colleague Dave Urasa and I were in the in the water and we were working within a manifold. So uh, people all sort of imagine oil; they can sort of picture oil rigs, but um, the bulk of the the infrastructure within the oil industry is, is, is on the seabed, um, you know, wells, um, electrical, hydraulic manifolds, um, all sorts of big structures, basically. So when I say a structure, we're talking about something the size of a, you know, a big house, um, about 10 meters high. I'm exaggerating there. That was about five meters high that one, I think five, six meters high. And then, um, maybe 30 meters long. So Dave and I were right inside this right in the middle and we were changing out a bit of pipework really. Um, so, that involves whenever we're going to take a section of pipe work out, we need to isolate the pressure on either side. So we were we would at that stage of proceedings, we were pressure testing either side to check that that pressure had been removed before just to check it's safe before we uh, we take that section off. And then uh, pressures obviously, as I'm sure you're aware, a massive danger in in diving, um, you know, differential pressures particularly. Um so that's something we're always very, very careful. We'll have a sort of we always make sure there are two. Two pressure cavity or two pressure free cavities, either side of whatever we're taking out. So that's but that's very, very much routine work for us. It's something we do on a daily basis. It wasn't really a big deal. It was very much a standard day at the office. The weather was was marginal. Now, um, our boat to sort of facilitate diving in one place on the seabed in 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 a you know a climate as rough as the North Sea. Um, has what's called a dynamic positioning system so um, that's basically a, a series of references beacons on the seabed uh, with gps it also uses torque wires which are basically wires which are drop down weighted wires that drop down to the seabed and as the boat moves then the angle of inclination of the wire coming back to the boat sends a message to the computer to to show how the boat has moved so yeah all this information is passed to a, a centralized computer on the bridge which calculates it all and and then counteracts the the forces of the tide and the wind and the waves by instructing the thrusters. So we have on our boat there sort of I think maybe five thrusters, different thrusters, which uh, plus the, the rear propeller, obviously, which um, uh, counteract all this information. And that allows the the boat to stay in a single position. And it's a remarkably good system. It really is incredible. When I'm working on the seabed, for example, um, we do a lot of work with cranes and. You could have a sort of 30 ton load hanging on the end of a crane wire in in fairly bad weather. Uh, and I can say, you know, can you move the crane five meters on 37 degrees and it will very smoothly move across, um, you know, that uh, five meters on 37 degrees. It's a very, very accurate system. You know, it'll usually hold within a meter, a meter pattern. But that is slightly weather dependent. And there, are, there does come a point when we, we stop diving because the boat, can't accurately hold position and that then endangers the divers on the seabed as there's a threat of dragging them around because we are connected at all times firstly the bell is connected and then we are connected to the bell by um by umbilicals so that night sorry to digress there slightly but yeah that night we were it was about 35 knot winds i think um and maybe a five or six meter swell which sounds pretty rough and it is fairly rough but that is within the design capabilities of the boat um it's fairly comfortable for it when we hit about 40 knots we start you stop using the cranes uh, and you're starting to think about stopping diving, you know, not long after that. But so we were close to the limit, but we weren't, we certainly went over the limit. Um, yeah. And then, so the weather was, yeah, getting close to being marginal. The sea state was really good though, down on the bottom. Um, often on the North Sea, the visibility is almost non-existent. You know, you're, you're probably the biggest skill down there is working in in no visibility, navigating your way around and and physically working when you can barely see your hands in front of your your face but that night it was good it was we could see really clearly um the manifold we were working in the bell was sitting just outside maybe 7 or 8 meters away from the manifold and we could see the bell very clearly which is unusual often we can't see it at all or you might get a faint glow of the lights but regularly you won't see, you can't see the bell at all so yeah it was yeah a, a routine day at the office very much so um yeah
1: a quick couple of questions about more of the technology is there a sort of a, sh- a shock absorber uh attaching the the bell to the ship i mean what stops the bell leaping up and down with the ship or is it just because it's in the center of the ship
0: yeah um no so yeah you can uh some systems the crane for example has a a, what we call a heave compensation system yeah um which is amazing in itself so that will that will allow for the the movement of the boat when we're when we're holding a load so you can even in quite bad weather the the load will stay very very stable as you're moving around with that but the bell doesn't have that no That, that relies on um on its location, as you said, it's it's in the middle. So it doesn't it does heave up and down, yeah. And on that night, as we'll, as we'll come on to, it was heaving up and down, you know. Um it's bizarre because when you're on the seabed, because you have the umbilical, as soon as you jump off the bell, you, you sort of lose the sensation of the weather above you. you because it's all, all the sort of movement is taken out by the by the flex of your umbilical. But uh, when you climb back and as soon as you get on the stage, you suddenly you can often realize, oh, it's quite rough up there because you're you're moving up and down quite violently sometimes and your ears are Popping away and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, once it gets to the stage where the they're monitoring that constantly in the in the bell hanger, if the wire were ever to snatch, for example, you know, jump up and down and snatch, that's that's almost always a well. We're stopping diving now. Um, but yeah, you can often get. I think the other cut off we have nowadays is a five meter heave. So, as a five meter heave of the bell in the moonpool, then that's that side. Like, but that's you know, that's that's not pleasant for the bellman, particularly. You know, the bellman has to sit. Two, you know, working teams of three, two in the water, but there's always a bellman sat in the bell for six hours and uh, you're going up and down five on a daily basis yeah you can get a bit tired and that's
1: what yeah, you you've just uh you've just put me off my quest to become a saturation diver with that single with that single description there i think <laughs> but uh you see in the film uh your mate duncan happily eating a sandwich and looking very relaxed and, and comfortable in his bill and reading a book and looks like uh he, he couldn't be in a better place
0: yeah mostly it's okay it's a it's a day off really yeah exactly once the, the the lads are out and you've you've done your bits and bobs and you're keeping half half an eye on the gases yeah you Indeed, as you say, you just put your feet up and read a book for six hours. It's quite, it's quite a nice place to be sometimes, yeah.
1: <laughs> Hello, this is Giles English, the co-founder of Bremel Watch Company. We're proud to be supporting Dr. Harris with his show, an ambassador and a friend of the brand who symbolises the core of Bremel with its Tested Beyond Endurance motto. As an engineering company, we specialise in the manufacture of beautifully made mechanical aviation watches that are built to be worn in the boardroom or up Mount Everest. With our strong military links, we work with adventurers all over the world. Now to learn more, please go to bremo.com and read about the likes of NIMS who's just smashed the record for climbing the 14 highest peaks in under seven months and see the watches wearing. Well, thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the show. So in the film, uh, the weather deteriorates and there's a very uh, clear and dramatic you know, visual description of the dynamic positioning system slowly starting to fail or, in fact, quite quickly starting to fail and uh, the lights go from, from green to amber and then to red and the ship starts to move away from the dive site. What, what was your first awareness that there was a problem?
0: Our first awareness of the problem was when we we heard the alarms. So we um, we were wearing a, a Kirby Morgan diving helmet, a 37C, I think it was. It would have been that night, and uh, the that has an open line of communication to your dive supervisor, so you can hear everything he's saying, uh, but you can also hear everything in the background. Um, so we heard the alarms going off um, when the, as you say, the the dynamic position suffered basically a catastrophic failure. Um, and they have a what they call a series of traffic lights in the bell so uh, an amber warning so when green is normal diving you know, you're, everything is fine amber means they've suffered um, maybe a loss of one of the reference references so we always have to have at least two different forms of references um you know a, a gps or a, a beacon on the seabed so that usually means you've won there's a danger of a loss of position you need to get back to the diving bell and then the red is the we have suffered a a total failure and i've never I, I've never experienced a red alert most people haven't so we heard the alarms uh that uh, they indicate that as well so it's an audible alarm in dive control which we were able to hear but that's not an unusual thing for us to hear strangely because our boat has two bells um to facilitate constant diving so uh, literally as we as we finish doing our six hours the, the next bell will come down and we sort of tag team on the on the seabed and go back so when they're preparing the next bell to come down, they'll test the alarms. So we'll hear them in the background quite often. So we weren't immediately concerned, you know, because it's something we hear every day. But soon after that, uh, Craig, who was uh, our dive supervisor that night, Craig Frederick, uh, who's a Canadian, uh, he was telling us to basically put everything down, our tools down. You know, I was holding a spanner or something at the time. Um, Put your tools down and make your way out of the structure. And I think it was just something in his... His tone of voice—he wasn't panicky, but you could hear in his tone of voice that this wasn't um, this wasn't a drill. It was a suddenness that he did it as well, right in the middle of our doing something. Um, you know, you could tell from his tone that this was this was something potentially potentially serious or at least immediate. Um, I didn't have any concept at all of what was what was happening. I don't I don't even particularly remember equating the alarms to what was what you know. Oh gosh, we're having an issue with the DP. I didn't remember thinking that. He just followed his instructions. You know, he was saying get yourself out of the structure, put your tools down. And we did so, Dave and I, in a, in a pretty orderly fashion, you know, there was no real running or panic um, at that stage. You know, there are, we do get little runoffs, get got little incidents, you know, there's always things, little things going on in sat diving. Um, so we weren't particularly panicking, but we, yeah, we we knew there was a need to get out of the structure pretty quickly. And, we, and, we, and that's what we did. Some of the structures we work in at times are very claustrophobic, full of pipe work, full of snagging hazards, basically this one was quite new and open we were with Dave and I have talked about it since you know had it happened where we were a few days before we, where we we might neither of us might have got out you know uh, but we did get out of the structure very pretty quickly you know and then I think within 30 seconds we were out on the we jumped down out onto the seabed yeah expecting to see the the diving bell straight in in front of us hanging you know the 10 meters away that we'd left it but um it wasn't yeah
1: <laughs> so you just follow your umbilical out of the structure that's your lifeline essentially and that gives you the path through any hazards or or um you know if it's a bit of a maze that that takes you out to safety
0: yeah that's exactly right i mean that's that's exactly right it's a lifeline is exactly how it is or what it is sorry it's a, it provides you with your your breathing gas it provides you with hot water um for your suit so we wear a fairly uh, there's not there's nothing very technical about the wetsuits we wear they're pretty loose fitting uh, raggedy old wetsuits really with a but they have a network sort of an infrastructure of pipe work a bit like um sort of an automatic watering system for your garden you know it's just little hoses with holes in and um you have a manifold on your left hip where the um the hot water hose plugs in and that pumps hot water around your your suit and and, and it just allows it to flood out but it's like being in a jacuzzi it's very pleasant you know um six thousand the bottom of the north sea it's about four degrees down there at that, that time of year um and being hot is usually the two the, the biggest problem you know sweating and getting pimples on your back and first world problems like that you know um it's quite a pleasant experience once you've once you've dived with in a hot water suit you don't ever want to do anything else <laughs> it's, it's it's like a, it's like torture having to go back to a dry suit you know you become a real a real prima donna um i'm back
1: on back on board now for commercial diving with that description
0: yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it's lovely it's a very pleasant very pleasant uh yeah once you've done it as i say you don't want to go back <laughs> Yeah, but that's, uh, and then it also has the reclaim hose I was talking about. So to remove the gases, um, there's also an electrical cable in there to provide um, power for your light on your hat and also your camera, camera feed. So it's a fairly chunky, maybe two inch thick umbilical, which um, exactly as you said is your, is your lifeline. So uh, in, in, in commercial diving, as, as you're familiar with, um, you know, there's a mantra that your, your, your umbil- you know, umbilical management is the be all and end all. You need to be constantly, constantly aware of where that is and how it's rooted. Because, as you said, the only way back is to follow that umbilical. And if that's tied around five or six different things, you know, you, you, you're you in trouble and you can't get out of a, in, an, in an emergency. And um, also with a boat, obviously, that is moving around, as we're about to talk about, if it's caught on something, you've got an issue as well in any kind of emergency in that environment um there is only one safe haven and that safe haven is the diving bell there are the the sort of panicked swim to the surface or anything like that just just simply isn't an option that you know they kill you straight away um through you know explosive decompression which just unfortunately has happened um it's so you don't really think about anything else yet it's follow your umbilical back to the diving bell that is that's your only your one and only option in, in that or any situation really
1: and I guess for the recreational divers who are listening, we should also add that you're kind of quite heavily weighted. You've got this uh, helmet on your head. You're you're walking around rather than swimming. You don't wear any fins or flippers, so uh, it's it's a slightly cumbersome movement, isn't it?
0: Yeah, cumbersome is exactly right. It's um, yeah. There's none of the grace of a of sort of you know a good scuba diver and beautifully balanced in the water. You know, um, yeah. You're, you've got you've usually got tools hanging off you and yeah stuff everywhere it's <laughs> you try your best to be streamlined but yeah uh, you are you're wearing a I wear a pair of old yellow fishing wellies um uh you are um you know negatively buoyant as you say you know just because you have to facilitate working on the bottom swimming upwards actually is not an option without we have a, a sort of buoyancy jacket which we wear um which has a is attached to your numathermopot pneumothem- thermometer but you can use that to inflate to float if you need to. So if you're working mid-water or you're working on, you know, on top of a structure, you need to climb back to the bell. If you're too lazy to climb back to the bell at the end of a day, you can you can um, blow that up. But um, yeah, you're not uh, you, you're not graceful. That's for sure. You're sort of yeah, a bit of a mess to be honest. Walking around.
1: <laughs> so you came out of the structure and and you couldn't see the bell. What what happened after that?
0: Well, we when we came out, we couldn't see the bells, which was confusing, um, but we both realised that our umbilicals were draped back over our heads, basically. They'd gone back over the structure, which, uh, I mean, I don't really make, give, remember giving it too much thought, um, you know, any sort of lucid calculation of what might be happening above, because as you say, you're, you're thinking about in that situation uh, and Craig's voice was getting more and more urgent. Uh, was you follow your umbilical, you follow your umbilical. So if your if your if your umbilical is draped over the top of the structure, you're going back over the top of the structure. So, yeah, we 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 just turned and you know still fairly calmly here at this point started to to climb up our umbilicals. So the problem you know I had was that uh, Duncan in the bell was being instructed to start coming up on our umbilical because as you come in, you know as we start to climb, you're starting to leave slack behind you. Um, but because he's got us both coming back he's got to make a decision you can only do one at a time and you know for reasons you'll have to ask him about he picked up he picked uh, he picked dave's <laughs> started coming up on dave's umbilical so uh, as we climb this sort of eight nine meters up to the top of this structure to follow our umbilicals i've left uh, i'm leaving a loop now as i said i'm you know you always preach umbilical um management um you know in an absolutely ideal situation you would gather that umbilical with you as you go to stop it catching on anything but that wasn't really a, an option there I needed to use the umbilical to climb I needed both hands to climb at pace I don't know it's you know retrospect's an easy thing though no, hindsight's an easy thing isn't it but yeah at the time I just sort of climbed leaving that loop really um and as soon as I got to the top I stood and I turned to pull that that loop in because I'm aware that that is a snagging hazard um but um yeah literally as I as I turned that loop because the you know, above me, the ship had lost control, complete control, you know, they'd, uh, they'd had a complete blackout of every screen on the bridge, total loss of all the the automatic systems of the dynamic positioning system. And they were basically just um, a sailboat, you know, they were being blown by the wind and the tide and it was moving away at, at some pace. You know, when you watch the sort of a navigational screen and you can see how quickly that boat is moving away, it's it's quite striking. Um, and what that meant for me that was my my umbilical was being pulled and tightening, and li- literally, as I say, as I turned, it had uh, taken a loop around um, what was a transponder bucket. Now, when they put this manifold in place on each, they would have done that would have done that without divers in the water initially, and there would have been uh, a transponder bucket, a transponder sort in each corner of this manifold. Uh, to allow them to orientate it as they were putting it down to make sure it's correctly aligned and so on. So normally, in normal run of things, that that should have been taken off after that job was complete and it wasn't. That sounds like I'm making an excuse, which I'm not. It's just it's just a matter of fact, really. Um, you know, there is no structure down there. that doesn't have snagging. Isn't covered in snagging hazards. And this was a good one, if anything, in t- in in that respect. But that's what it was. Um, I mean, in in the film, they sort of. You have you can see that that very footage um, of me turning to to do that, and uh, it sort of looped a bit in the film for dramatic effect. Whereas in reality, it was a very very quick process. You know that thing went round and tightened around this transponder bucket. So basically, I'm one side of the bu- bucket, and my umbilical was the other, uh, and it's looped and tightened upwards, and it had trapped uh, trapped underneath extraordinarily quickly. I dropped down immediately, uh, sort, of, sort of leapt down to try and free it, but you know within second or two I realized that was going to be a fruitless endeavor it was absolutely jammed up underneath and it was pulling me in you know so there was a small gap between the you know underneath the transponder bucket and I was being pulled inexorably towards it I can remember in fact my you know uh, you know thinking about well, we'll come on to what happened but my initial you know my initial um, worry was that I was being pulled my legs were being splayed across the top bar of the structure being pulled very wide sort of almost was doing the splits and I remember thinking you know first of all my legs are going to break here you know this is going to pull me and my legs are going to break I mean you've got 5,000 tons of ship at the other end uh, pulling me and I'm effectively at that point I've become an anchor you know and there's only ever going to be one winner in that situation obviously yeah that was my first thought my legs were sort of splaying and then but it it tightened enough I think uh, you know so much which again in retrospect, was a very very good thing because if that had been hadn't been so tight and it had run free, freely, if you like, underneath the transponder bucket. I would have gone with it, and I would have been pulled through a gap that was significantly smaller than my body. You know, like going through a cheese, cheese gator, really, and that would have that would have been the end of me, or my helmet would have been pulled off. You know, and it would have been it would have been instant, certain death, really. Yeah, but uh, thankfully, I suppose uh, it it was so so jammed that I end up sort of I end up sort of braced across the top of this this sort of top bar, which is about a meter a meter circumference bar at the top stuck basically and then you know i could sense and you could hear the umbilical creaking under the strain as it was basically being stretched away uh, in the meantime dave who was alongside me as he got to the top of the structure and started to you know walk back across towards what he assumed was the bell in the distance he realized that there was i had a i'd had a problem and he turned back to to see what it was and to see if he could help me and uh, you know he realized pretty quickly that i was in in trouble and that my umbilical was caught so he turned to to make an effort to, to get back to me, to assist me. But, um, you know, the boat was moving away at such a rate. um We only have a finite amount of un- umbilical. So ours was limited to 50 metres that day. And he was already, I think, you know, uh, Duncan was throwing his umbilical back out of the bell to give him enough slack to try and get back to me. But even after all 50, 50 metres was thrown back into the water, he was he just couldn't get back to me. It was maybe two metres short. We've talked about it quite a lot since that we we remember this strange moment when we we sort of could see each other and we were looking into each other's face plates and I could sort of see the whites of his eye and he could see mine. And, um, you know, there was almost a look of resignation in his eyes or a look of apologies, you know, you know I was not, nothing, nothing I can do for you, mate. Um, yeah, and it was almost like a moment of goodbye. And um, he was pulled backwards away from me into the darkness. And it was very, it was a very sort of cinematic moment in that sort of ethereal environment, uh, that dark environment with just a hat um, being pulled away and then eventually just disappearing into the darkness and you know i never i never saw him again unfortunately yeah i mean uh then at that point the the umbilical is starting to stretch um to near breaking point um and it didn't just go in one go it it uh, first of all the gas hose uh i think i think it must have got stretched to the point it either broke or it was kinked or you know there wasn't enough um sort of room for the gas to get down uh, so i lost my I lost my breathing gasp, you know, very, pretty much instantly. So that's the point at which, you know, you referred to the bailout. So that's what, we, what I did. You know, you go straight away and there's a, you have a knob on the side of your of your helmet and you turn that to to open the supply of gas from your your bailouts. Um, that's a pretty standard procedure, something we practice a lot. And, you know, you don't really have to think about that kind of thing. But what that did at that point was put me on this clock um, in normal diving you know situations that we essentially have an infinite supply of gas coming down on umbilical you know there's are enormous supplies on the boat um you know enough to last days and days and days and weeks in fact you know months if no one else dies i suppose but as soon as you go onto that that supply on your back then i'm on a clock you know and uh, you know probably would have been about an eight minute clock something like that uh, depending on how quickly i was i was breathing and then very quickly after that—that that, sorry, which that in itself is obviously panic-inducing. You know, as soon as you were uh, you on that, you know, you turn your bailout on. I've never had to do that in anger before in, in my entire diving career. Uh, you know, something's—you know, this is starting to get pretty serious. Uh, but very quickly after that, the the communications line. So I, I, during this, all of this, I'm asking for slack. I'm constantly shouting. You know, please give me slack. Give me slack to the diver two, which is who I was that night which they just weren't able to do. The, the umbilical was so tight in the diving bell at the other end, essentially that Duncan couldn't even peel, peel it off the, the rack that it was on. Um, and you see footage in the film of the, of the rack you know, stainless steel rack bending off the wall, which was a serious danger for him. The umbilical then stretched to the point that the, the communications line broke as well. And that sort of frazzled out, like, like ripping a sort of stereo jack out the back of a uh, of a, a stereo, you know, and, uh, a screeching noise, and suddenly I I can't hear anybody, and that and it that again is is panic inducing. You know, suddenly so not having a a comforting voice in your ear, uh, suddenly you you feel very alone. Uh, yeah, uh, and again you realise you know this is this is getting more and more serious. And then, yeah, I, I couldn't even tell you how long it was, but it kind of been more than five, six seconds later, the The strain on the umbilical as the boat moved away became became too much and, and it and it snapped and um, it rang out like a shotgun. You know, it was a massive, massive bang. Uh, Dave heard it as he was being, Dave at, the, at this time was being pulled sort of in midwater along by the boat, trying to desperately trying to get, pull himself back to the bell along his umbilical. But he heard it loud and clear and, um, you know, and I certainly did and, yeah and uh at that point I you know I lost my light I lost everything um and I tumbled back down towards the seabed and found myself in this most um complete and absolute darkness you know like a darkness I've never experienced before really it was black 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 uh, sort of pr- you know lying on my back like a an upturned turtle on the seabed wondering what on earth's going on <laughs> so yeah it was a, a tra- traumatic experience at that point that's for sure
1: ever have a drink and a breath. That's
0: um, hmm. sorry, I'm rabbiting. I'm, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, not not at all. I'm just, um, you know, I've got a dry mouth just just listening, <laughs> just listening. And only watched it again last night. But Jesus, um, so you fall off the structure onto your back. Um, I've got two quick questions: Did the umbilical free itself as you fell, or were you still orientated by some connection to the structure? And secondly. If wearing these helmets, if you fall upside down, does water get in under the under the lip of the helmet and flood the, the helmet? You're listening to Real Risk, the adventure podcast with Richard Harris.
0: So, in terms of the helmet, the um, you wear a, a neck dam. So the um, that's a, a sort of a, basically a, a metal ring which goes around your neck, but it has a, a with a latex sort of diaphragm almost. In which your neck goes through so it forms a sort of seal around your neck so no in theory um you, you know it, it it doesn't and it didn't flood up yeah because you have this sort of seal between this this neck dam and your and your helmet so we can hang upside down in the water and work upside down and regularly do you know so that's not really an issue um the umbilical itself yeah did free itself absolutely yeah that could have been a that could be a problem and certainly when the as we'll come on to the the rescue when dave came back to to fetch me that was one of the first things he checked and one of the first things the remotely operated vehicle checked was that the the umbilical wasn't still caught on something because you know worst case scenario would be trying to drag me back and Realising I'm still stuck to something on the seat and having to drop me and start all over again, so um yeah, I was uh, lucky in that respect, yeah as soon as the soon as the umbilical snapped, then the tension was relieved, and it just fell away fell away with me. I think I had a tail of about maybe three three meters three or four meters of umbilical left, yeah, so like a shredded affair at, at the end of it, yeah, I always meant to I uh, was meant to keep that for the keepsake, but it disappeared, and I, I never know where it went. <laughs>
1: So at 90 metres in the North Sea on a, well, it's night time anyway, so it is literally pitch black uh, and you have no light at all. You don't have backup lights, I presume, that are battery-driven or anything, so you're in the dark and um, disorientated.
0: Um, Yeah, so uh, as you say, completely pitch black at at that time of night on the bottom of the North Sea and, um, yeah, a scary, lonely place to be all of a sudden. I don't think I really appreciated, even at that point, what was actually going on. You're still in sort of fight or flight mode, I think. Um, uh, as I said, the only the only sort of safe place to be is the bell. So I mean, your mind is completely focused on on that. But it was very disorientating. Um, it's very easy to get lost down there. At the best of times, you know, even with somebody telling you which way to go and a compass and uh, and a light on your hat, uh, it's very easy to get disorientated, turned around. You know, put yourself in an embarrassing situation where you have got, you know, where well, you're lost on a seabed with a, you know, two hundred thousand pound a day boat. <laughs> above you waiting for you to find the job um so yeah in that in that context it was it was it was tenfold um I think I'd fallen maybe maybe only about two or three meters away from the structure as I'd floated downwards but I had no idea at all where it was and uh, you know my instinct was to find the structure climb back to the top and assume the diving bell would be above me and you know get back to it or Dave would be there waiting for me I I don't know really but I I realized I didn't I didn't have a clue which way to go um I, I sort of orientate myself a couple of seconds lying on the seabed and then uh, clumsily got myself to my feet um and then at that point it was just the you know I realized be a case of potluck really I, I you know put my you know it's a bit like sort of trying to find the toilet in the night in the in the middle of the night your hands go out in front of you in the dark and you're trying to feel your way through literally the most absolute darkness I've ever known and so that was the first dose of luck I guess of many um but, um, I I wandered in a direction. I can't remember why I picked that one particularly. I suppose you, you maybe have a sense of where you might have fallen. And I sort of put my hands out in front and took two or three steps and, and hit metal. I could very easily turn and go on the other way, um, which would have made finding me much more difficult. Now that night I had, a, I had a beacon on me, which strangely we didn't, which sounds ridiculous now, but we didn't always carry um, a beacon um, with me. With us, you know, we used to, so we used to at that point, I think we used to alternate because we used to use it in a working capacity, but didn't really need it for to find the divers because <laughs> they're at the end of their umbilicals, you know. But that night I did, yeah, so I, I sort of found this structure. But if I had walked out into no man's land, uh, they would have had to use that beacon to find me, otherwise, you know, they wouldn't. And that would have, you know, considering the problems we were having on the bridge, you know, having lost all, all the the computer screens that would have been very very difficult
1: is that a sonar beacon or a flashing light or what is
0: it sonar beacon yeah yeah just ping the signal back so we now nowadays we carry one constantly attached to our backs and you know they use that to navigate us around the seabed so they can see you know up in dive control they have a, a what we call a nav screen which has the boat on it the all the subsea structures and you can see both divers and the diving bell and the cranes and they can use that to to navigate you around you know when when it when the, when the visibility or the darkness is too much for you to see where you're going you know Um, So that's a great, it's a great bit of kit. And, uh, you know, my heaven knows why we didn't always carry one. I I mean, it's just, it was useful more than anything. Um, But um, in this situation, obviously it was essential because, I mean, we'll come on to it in a minute, but, you know, the, having completely lost power on the, uh, on the boat, the boat eventually drifted some 250 meters away from us. Um, I had no sense of that at all, but they were, you know, they were a million miles away from us really. It may as well have been with Dave only having 50 meters of umbilical and it was only Dave who was going to be able to come and get me that was it and they the only way so they they at that point they as they'd lost completely lost all all the automatic systems they had to go to a, a manual system and the manual system involves four joysticks so you need that it was the captain and the first officer at either end of a console table trying to maneuver the the thrusters so they had four thrusters i think it was you know one hand on each thruster trying to coordinate between the two of them to counteract winds and waves and and so on, and they were using the only reference they had was the ping of my umbilical. So they were still getting that on a radar screen, and um, the the radar operator, the he was giving them range and bearing really, and they were trying to follow that. But I mean, the truth is they they couldn't. You know, they they were there's a sort of a. A snail trail if you like of the, the the path the boat took that night and it's you know um, we'll call it spaghetti junction and it's very well you live down that way didn't you so you know where spaghetti junction is but yeah <laughs> it's an analogy we always use here in the uk but it's just a sort of road junction that's a complete mess you know <laughs> um but yeah it was like a bag of spaghetti basically and um they were n- not getting anywhere near to moving back in my direction and in fact the boat was so out of control that the captain subsequently said that you know even if they had been anywhere near me they wouldn't have allowed Dave to come and fetch me because it would have, you know, A would have endangered him. B would have been, they have to lower the bell to come and rescue me. And you're endangering the bell if the boat's out of control. And, you know, if the bell snags on something, the whole ship's in danger, you know, so, so yeah, while they were messing around with that, the, you know, I, I was oblivious to all this, obviously, and I'm, I'm sort of climbing, I, I was trying to find a way to climb the structure. And because it was so open, there actually were no, Obvious handholds, or certainly none that I could see, because this was all completely through feel. So once I sort of had hold of the metal or I was touching it, I was absolutely desperate not to not to lose it again. I, you know, you, you feel it even if you take a step in the wrong direction, you might not find your way back. You know, because it's so easy to wander in the wrong direction in that sort of in that sort of darkness. I, I remember edging my way along, sort of keeping one hand on the structure and shuffling my feet like an old man along the seabed, hoping to find something to find my way back up. And what I eventually bumped into was a was a hose and it turns out it was a we've been doing pressure testing the hose pressure testing while we were working so that's a sort of two inch hose that comes all the way from the boat down into the structure where we were working and they'd had to as the boat had moved away in an uncontrolled fashion they'd had to sever that on the on the boat at the ship end so there must have been a hundred and hundred odd meters of hose lying down in the water draped over the top of the structure. But the weight of that was sufficient that I was able to get some purchase on it and, and use that to climb back up. I didn't really know what it was at the time, but you know, I just knew it was a way up, which is all, all you're thinking about. So I climbed the, the ten meters up to the top of the structure and pulled myself over the lip and looked up fully, I don't know why, but fully expecting to see the diving bell somewhere, you know. I didn't really fathom that it might have gone 250 meters away, you know. I I thought I would see a light somewhere or uh, something at least to aim for. It was always going to be difficult because the we mentioned we have a buoyancy control device jacket. That doesn't have a supply from your bailout. It's only from the, the main supply, the main gas supply. So as my umbilical was severed, uh, I'd lost the ability to, to inflate my jacket. So actually swimming upwards was never going to be an option. So people sort of, you know, since the accident, people say, oh, you know, you did the right thing and so on. And, uh, you know, you didn't swim for the surface, which you might do in a panic, but, you know, Who's to say I wouldn't have done you know, uh, in in a panic? But that wasn't an option, thankfully. Uh, uh, because I physically couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't swim
1: upwards. Is your buoyancy such that climbing a vertical structure like that is not too hard, just with your arms?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can. Yeah, you're just you're just negative, really. Um, yeah, you're pulling yourself up. It's like a very easy. I was, you know, a bit like being on the moon. I guess you probably, you know. Yeah. just slightly negative so yeah you're pulling yourself up you want the you you need the negative buoyancy to be able to to function on the seabed to work you know if you've got a swinger uh, a sledgehammer you know you need to have the you need to have the negative buoyancy to give you some purchase and just to move around so we are so you're light climbing it's a pleasant experience jumping up and down structures you know but um you definitely need to use a bit of pull So, yeah, uh, you know, if you're in a working capacity, if you're going to be working off the seabed, you you would normally inflate your your jacket just to give yourself a bit of relief more than anything else. But you can definitely climb up without it, yeah. But swim up, no. Um, I wouldn't be able to swim upwards. Yeah, then, you know, once I was on the top, it sort of dawned on me fairly quickly at that point that um, the bell wasn't there and Dave wasn't there. And that was a strange moment of recognition, really. Um, I sort of remember there was almost like a transition from the the wild panic of just getting myself back to the bell to to realising that, you know, I remember doing a little bit, of, little bit of maths thinking, oh, you know, I know I haven't got that long in this. It can only be sort of seven, eight minutes. I've probably used two, three minutes just to get myself back up up here, breathing pretty heavily at that. And there was no sign of Dave. And, you know, even if Dave had been there, you know, right there waiting for me, ready to pick me up and, and hold me back, you know, three or four minutes to get me back to the bell stage, get my head up into the bell and take my helmet off. I probably didn't think it was going to be long enough, so almost a resignation came over me at that point that um, this wasn't going to be survivable. You know that this was this was going to be it. I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna make it.
1: Well, my nerves can't take another hour of that, so we're going to leave it there and come back next week to see how Chris gets himself out of this extraordinary dilemma. Thanks for joining me again on Real Risk. That's it for this episode of Real Risk. If you're a risk taker or know someone who'd be good for the show, please send me an email on admin at speleopix.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Subscribe, give me a rating, but most importantly, join me for the next one. We'll see you again on Real Risk.